0: chapter twelve of some american story-tellers by frederick tabor cooper this librivox recording is in the public domain twelve owen wister no matter how willingly we may obey candide's wise injunction to cultivate our garden it is well to remember that not every writer can achieve an equal profusion and variety nor an equal clearness of plan and purpose not to every one is it given to grow oranges and lemons citrons and pistachios in oriental opulence there are some literary gardens that bring with them an old-time fragrance of mignonette and sweet alisum with sunflowers and hollyhocks in the background others again may be only an humble cabbage patch or perhaps a garden of allah all burning sand and sunshine but born of singleness of purpose distinct and unmistakable but how at first sight is one to interpret a garden composed of much sage-brush one towering redwood a magnolia and a head of boston lettuce yet this in all courtesy be it said is a fair inventory of the harvest which up to the present time has rewarded mr wister's tillage in the fertile soil of his imagination his short stories of western ranch life ranging from arizona to wyoming and comprising practically all his early work and an ample share of his later are literally as redolent of the soil as unmistakably indigenous in color form and atmosphere as is the gray-green aromatic herbage that forms so conspicuous a feature of their setting his one full-length novel the virginian has a certain primal bigness about it that makes it seem to loom up tree-like in rugged dignity a growth of nature rather than of art lady baltimore has by contrast a sort of hot-house charm that southern softness of manners and of speech as unmistakable and as delightful in their way as the form and fragrance of a magnolia bloom and even boston lettuce has not a flavour more local a more unsuspected generosity of close-packed and succulent substance than that blithe little satire of college life philosophy for with its unpretentious outward showing and the golden wisdom hidden at its heart. Yet it is precisely the informality of Mr. Wister's garden, the absence of neat paths and close-clipped hedgerows, that gives the first important clue to his literary methods. The simple fact is that Mr. Wister has never attempted to preempt any special corner of the habitable world and make it his own, in any such sense as Mrs. Wilkins Freeman preempted New England, Mr. Allen, Kentucky or mr cable new orleans the fact that he has become identified in the popular mind with certain sections of the west is due less to his interest in the life of the plains as something curious and anomalous something different from humanity as we ordinarily understand it than to his recognition of the far more important fact that underneath the picturesque and striking surface differences human nature west and east is at heart a fairly constant quantity his obvious love for the characters of his own creating scipio lemoyne and steve and the virginian is not because they were cowboys with a strange dialect and a still stranger moral code but because when one came to know them one found them men acting as the best of us might act if exposed to like conditions in this connection it is a significant fact that mr wister almost always writes frankly as an outsider bringing himself into the story after the method of mr kipling's earlier tales and writing in the first person as the one who has witnessed certain events or to whom certain others were repeated at first hand the result of this method is that we are all the time forced to see and measure whatever is local and transitory through alien eyes and that we think of such a book as the virginian not as the record of a phase of life that has already passed away but as a vital and enduring presentment of types and characters that are most thoroughly most widely most delightfully american after conceding freely and gladly these merits to mr wister it will not be thought ungenerous to proceed to point out some of his shortcomings and to say at once frankly that he is one of those story-tellers who have won fame not because of their craftsmanship but in spite of their lack of it to the fundamental doctrine of economy of means he shows a blithe indifference in his long stories and his shorter ones alike he refuses to trim his hedges or to prune back his vines preferring to let them luxuriate weed-like in whatever direction they list to some extent it is a handicap for an author to have a too facile charm of style the writer who is conscious that if he allows himself to become garrulous if he strays a hair's breadth beyond the strict letter of his theme he will be voted a bore learns at an early stage the fine art of suppression which emerson once declared to be the supreme quality of a literary style but the genial narrator who is assured of his hold upon his audience even when he rambles far afield with many a digression many a this reminds me is not likely to hamper himself with a rigid technique and thereby lose the chance of drawing forth an additional laugh or winning an extra round of applause this ability to digress with impunity mr wister has to an unusual extent even through the medium of the printed page one is always conscious of a pleasing personality and can almost see the indulgent smile or the amused twinkle of the eye that must accompany certain characteristic flashes of humour for there can be no question that besides being a storyteller, the creator of emily and the frog's legs episode must be numbered among our recognised american humorists. and what is more Enrolled as one who has never, for the sake of scoring a point, degraded humour to the level of farce comedy. Now, since an author is known by the company that he keeps upon his bookshelves, or at least by that smaller group which he considers worthy of emulation, it is worth while to pause for a moment over Mr. Wister's own confessions in the preface to his latest published volume, Members of the Family he tells us for instance that so far back as eighteen eighty four mr howells had felt his literary pulse and pronounced it promising that a quickening came from the pages of stevenson and a far stronger shove next from the genius of plain tales from the hills and oddly enough that the final push happened to be given by Prosper mirime all of these influences with the exception of the last mentioned are of course obvious enough to any clear-eyed critic but it is interesting to know that they were influences of the conscious sort and that mr wister frankly recognizes his indebtedness the influence of May, however is one that we might have been a long time in discovering without this direct acknowledgment yet the connection is sufficiently easy to perceive when one's attention has been directed to it May, like wister found his interest aroused and his imagination stimulated chiefly by new and foreign environments as in his best-known stories colomba Carmen, la vinus wherein he could study without criticizing the manner in which the fundamental problems of human nature work themselves out under the special limitations of corsican or spanish manners and customs but his list of acknowledgments is not yet complete there is one more to whom he professes a debt of gratitude namely henry james and the heartfelt tribute that he proceeds to pay to the author of the ambassadors is the best proof that whatever his own shortcomings in technique may be mr Wister's instinctive recognition of a master craftsman is beyond reproach his own words in this connection deserve not only to be quoted but cordially endorsed because if more of our young novelists to-day had even a rudimentary idea of the amount that henry james might teach them american fiction would be less conspicuous for its prolificness and more conspicuous for its finer and higher standards the influence is as he points out already at work and slowly but surely it is bound to spread it is significant to note how this master seems to be teaching a numerous young generation often do i pick up some popular magazine and read a story one even of murder it may be in tropic seas or city slums where some canny bit of foreshortening of presentation reveals the spreading influence and i say ah my friend never would you have found out how to do that if henry james hadn't set you thinking but in authorship for every one influence of which we are conscious there are a dozen that work unguessed unsuspected and in mr wister's case had his acquaintances with modern fiction been limited solely to those authors to whom he pays tribute a work like the virginian with all its faults would be inconceivable what the other influences have been it is needless here to conjecture for the sufficient and practical reason that his own admissions prove him to be of widely catholic tastes as free from attachment to any particular school as let us say was marion crawford howells the veteran champion of realism james the subtlest of english psychologues stevenson the belated romanticist all find equal favour in his sight not because of what they profess but because he realises that each of them achieves quite admirably the special thing that he has undertaken to do in other words mr wister is an eclectic both in his theories and in his practice of fiction it is impossible to pronounce him realist or romanticist symbolist or psychologue his methods vary not only from book to book but from chapter to chapter in the same book maupassant for instance might have written more than one episode in the virginian the lynching of the cattle thieves for instance or that other even more cruel chapter in which a human fiend avenges himself upon a horse driven beyond its strength by gouging out its eye but none but a dreamer could have written the idol of molly's marriage to the virginian and the honeymoon on the sylvan island the only fault of which is that it was all too beautiful to be quite true having acquired this initial perspective of mr wister's literary theory and practice as a whole we may now profitably take up the separate works in detail according to the division suggested by our opening symbolism of the garden and first of all as to the sagebrush portion of his work the stories of rather uneven merit ranging all the way from mediocre to extremely good that made up the contents of such early volumes as red men and white and the jimmy john boss well to be quite candid a detailed analysis of them would add nothing of real value to a critical estimate of their author because they are in a measure apprentice work they were written while mr wister was in the phrase of the literary shop learning his job had he never done anything better the jimmy john boss the opening story in the volume of that name narrating how a cowboy whose sole education has been acquired in the school of adversity and whose chief asset is his indomitable nerve is made foreman of the most lawless and undisciplined set of ruffians on any ranch in the state takes them firmly in hand and even after a temporary rebellion when they are crazed with drink succeeds in getting back control and making himself undisputed master all this and a dozen other tales would have merited a certain amount of critical praise but as it happens they were merely an earnest of something far better yet to come and in due time that something better came in the form of the virginian which in its genesis is nothing more nor less than an accretion of short stories just as maupassant's first novel une vie is an assemblage of short stories and with the additional point of resemblance that in both cases a number of the stories have been published separately in the case of the virginian several chapters having appeared in advance in magazine form in that of une vie the short stories being printed much later in a posthumous volume the only practical purpose for recalling here what must be a rather widely known fact is that it serves to prove that mr wister belongs to that class of story-tellers whose natural form is the short story rather than the long who see every story in the first instance as a single detached incident and when they attempt a more sustained effort find themselves simply stringing together a series of such incidents upon just one rather slender narrative thread as it happens the virginian proved itself in defiance of mathematics to be considerably bigger than the sum of its parts but that i think was due less to a definite carefully worked out plan than to a chance unity of ideas running through all the several segments the west as a broad free stupendous whole had impressed mr wister mightily and in a way that could not be quickly formulated or easily put into words but with each story each episode he came nearer to saying some part of what was struggling for utterance and when all these separate parts were finally fitted together into a single volume it would be interesting to know whether mr wister himself was not just a trifle surprised to find how well he had succeeded in expressing a number of rather important truths if it were not for the danger of being misunderstood as praising the virginian for qualities which it does not possess the simplest way of defining its character and at the same time explaining why its very looseness of construction in some degree is a help rather than a hindrance would be to say that it was of the epic type but the term would have to be understood in a far more elemental sense than when applied to the careful almost architectural symmetry of the zolaesque method the virginian is epic in so far as it shows us certain individual lives struggling to reach a solution of problems equally vital to the length and breadth of the whole vast region in which they live a small group of human beings trying to justify to themselves and the world at large the fundamental justice of the rude moral code that governs them in a stricter sense of the word the virginian is not merely badly constructed it is almost without structure there is not a chapter in it that we would willingly spare but that does not alter the fact that aside from a few crucial scenes there is scarcely a chapter whose excision would destroy the book's essential unity in other words the book is so far of the picaresco type that its episodes are like so many pearls on a single thread undoubted gems of their kind but so arranged that the removal of one or more would not leave a gap in the design the virginian has actually that lack of deliberate detail work for which so many critics wrongfully censure mr kipling's Kim. yet if we are willing to think for a moment of the west that glorious virgin west of earlier years as a sort of anthropomorphized heroine just as we think of india as the heroine of kim then it becomes possible to forgive much of the looseness the apparent irrelevancy the digressions because much that is either superfluous or beside the mark so far as it is meant to help us understand the individual lives of molly or the virginian steve or trampas becomes fraught with a new import when our interest is focused on the destiny of a community almost on a nation this bigger view of the virginian is of course the true one the individual life of any one cow-puncher of no matter how much instinctive and inborn honesty and courage and deference to women is not for its own sake alone material fine enough or strong enough from which to fashion a novel that could have taken the firm hold upon the general public from the atlantic to the pacific that the virginian indisputably has taken however lovable mr wister's rough diamond of the ranches may be and however sympathetically romantic his courtship of the demure little school-teacher with the new england conscience these ingredients alone would not have kept the book alive throughout the first six months the secret of its enduring hold upon the public must be sought in something deeper and more vital we find the answer i think in the broad general principle expressed here and there in words and throughout the book by implication that in every community men must make such laws for themselves as the conditions under which they live demand the trick of getting the drop on your adversary the right to shoot an enemy at sight after a fair warning the whole underlying theory of vigilance committees and of lynch law are justified only by the exigencies of special conditions the advantage of the crudest and most rudimentary form of justice over no justice at all mr Wister has not the least intention of holding lawlessness up for our admiration just because it comes in picturesque masquerade when the virginian cooperates in a murder according to our eastern standards by helping to lynch his personal friend steve and when again he puts himself upon a level with a skulking outlaw like trampas accepts his challenge to shoot at sight and succeeds in shooting straighter mr Wister is not proclaiming the frontier code of wyoming to have been superior to the english common law he is simply insisting that if you or i are going to live in a community we must accept the ethics of that community if we wish to be respected he is exalting the hackneyed proverb about doing in rome as the romans do from mere expediency a mere courteous wish to do the expected thing into a big fundamental principle of human rights and duties and when molly's new england conscience capitulates to love and when after swearing she will never forgive the virginian if he kills trampas she exclaims thank god at the sight of trampas's dead body mr Wister is not to be misunderstood as claiming that molly's moral nature has undergone a change and that if she returned to her new england home she would take with her a strain of newly acquired lawlessness what he does teach is that she has acquired a wider horizon a broader view of life that she has suddenly been made to see that right and wrong are sometimes relative terms and that what is a penal offence in massachusetts may be the truest heroism among the rockies this same broad principle that every community, whether large or small, rude or cultured, knows better than any outsider can know its own interests and necessities, forms the cornerstone of Mr. Wister's best short story, Philosophy for And partly because it is his best short story, partly because it is replete with a far sighted wisdom, partly also because it is in a class by itself unique and inimitable it has seemed worth while to give it in the present analysis of mr wister's writings an amount of space that to some readers may seem out of proportion to its size and scope there are many worthy persons who cherish the delusion that the percentages marked by solemn professors upon examination books are a fair criterion of the practical good which a student is obtaining from his college course and that his precise standing in the graduating class is a reliable gauge of his future chances of success or failure they are not aware that they are judging life from the standpoint of that venerable but somewhat misleading fable of the hare and the tortoise and because some human hares have loitered by the wayside and some human tortoises dull plodding and industrious have come in ahead they take the result as a measure of relative speed throughout life the undergraduate world makes no such blunders and mr wister always felicitous in his subtle understanding of worlds and environments to which he bears the relation of an outsider was never more delightfully more triumphantly successful than in his tour de force in which he bridged the years that separated him from his own harvard days and reflected the spirit of the time and place as only a harvard man of the early eighties could have known and felt it but it would not be fair to imply that the merit of philosophy for is mainly local or temporal in all the larger universities there are in every class certain students who are recognized as born leaders in class politics in athletics in college journalism in all that gives undergraduate life cohesion and unity they come to the front In the older New England universities, they belong largely to the number of those whose fathers and grandfathers before them were prominent in the social life of their respective classes, and whose family names figure prominently in the pages of early American history. To such as these, a four years course at Yale or Harvard is enveloped in a maze of traditions undreamed of by the stranger and the alien. The university is not merely a seat of learning from which the maximum of knowledge must be extracted at a definite rate per day it is a miniature world in which they are to find their level just as they must find it later in the bigger world and they are quite as much interested in finding out what their fellow classmates think of them as they are in winning the approval of the dean and faculty and in the long run the verdict of the undergraduate world is not greatly at variance with the later verdict of the world at large in other words philosophy for in spite of its joyously irresponsible mood emphatically points a moral although it may be in a somewhat topsy-turvy manner and incidentally it reflects undergraduate life with such fidelity that no harvard man of twenty-five years standing can read it without experiencing successive waves of nostalgia with the opening sentence it projects us at once into the sultry atmosphere of examination week with all its unforgotten sights and sounds and odours the fragrance of early june flowers wafted in at the windows the lazy droning of ponderous beetles blundering into the students lamps the distant singing of the glee club borne in from the steps of a dormitory across the yard within the room two anxious perspiring students bertie and billy are being prepared for an imminent examination in philosophy for by a fellow classmate whose name alone is a fairly sufficient characterization of race and attributes oscar Myroni, at the exorbitant sum of five dollars an hour bertie and billy are of the type of the grasshopper in la fontaine's familiar fable throughout the season of plenty they have played and sung oblivious of fate approaching in the form of the greek philosophers but suddenly the very names of aristotle and plato epicarmus of cos send cold chills down their backs and they hastily seek out Meroni, the human ant and preempt a share of his stored-up knowledge now Meroni is a type of student that will be readily recognized he is of the tortoise type patient plodding bound ultimately to attain his goal because a certain number of steps make a furlong and a definite number of furlongs make a mile his retentive memory absorbs the words of professorial wisdom after the fashion of a sponge and when examination day comes sponge-like he will squeeze it back again somewhat muddier and somewhat more scanty than when he received it yet essentially the same and without an added drop of originality over the two irresponsible spirits billy and bertie oscar labors faithfully sadly bewildered and somewhat pained by their lack of reverence for the sages of antiquity understanding only vaguely the rapid fire of their chaff and their slang but allowing himself no protest beyond a mildly sarcastic reference to their original research by seven o'clock on monday evening they have salted down the early greek bucks by midnight they have called the turn on plato tuesday night brings them down to the multiplicity of the ego the examination is set for thursday accordingly wednesday is dedicated to a general last survey of the whole subject as it happens wednesday morning dawns bright and clear a most alluring morning for a wild and irresponsible break for liberty the open country beyond the charles calls to them irresistibly there is besides a sort of tradition that somewhere in the direction of quincy there is a wonderful old tavern a mysterious elusive will-o'-the-wisp sort of place called the bird in hand where marvellous dinners and still more fabulous wines could be obtained if only one could find the place have you any sand bertie inquires of billy sand billy yells in response and within twenty minutes they are driving rapidly in the direction of quincy leaving oscar in the lurch and at this point mr wister subtly explains you see it was oscar that had made them run so or rather it was duty and fate walking in oscar's displeasing likeness nothing easier nothing more reasonable than to see the tutor and tell him that they should not need him today. but that would have spoiled everything they did not know it but deep in their childlike hearts was a delicious sense that in thus unaccountably disappearing they had won a great game had got away ahead of duty and fate it was a wild and exhilarating day that bertie and billy spent in pursuit of the elusive bird in hand they cooled themselves with a swim in the charles they lay on the bank and shouted at each other questions from greek philosophy turning it into a game by agreeing that each should credit himself with twenty-five cents whenever the other failed to answer correctly and finally when daylight was fading into dusk they stumbled unexpectedly upon the long-sought tavern thanks to the timely shying of their horse enjoyed an opulent repast in which silver fizz played a conspicuous part lost all conception of time and place and drove homeward by the waning light of the moon in such an exhilarated condition that when billy inadvertently tumbled out of the wagon over the wheel he had barely energy enough remaining to inquire who had fallen and when told to add in plaintive cadence did billy fall out poor billy now by all the laws of probability a night like this should have paved the way for a first-class failure in philosophy for but it did nothing of the sort oscar who had spent the previous day in calling with business-like punctuality once an hour at their room and leaving memoranda to the effect that his services had been duly tendered plodded through the three hours examination with his wonted laborious fidelity and received a modest seventy-five per cent as a reward for answering the professor's questions in the professor's own words but billy's mark was eighty-six and bertie's ninety and they were both highly complimented by the professor bertie for his discussion of the double personality and his apt illustration of the intoxicated hack-driver who had fallen from his hack and inquired who had fallen and then had pitied himself and billy for his striking and independent suggestions concerning the distortions of time and space which hashish and other drugs produce But the crowning touch of irony is attained in Oscar's unbounded astonishment, his inability to understand. He hastened to the professor with his tale. "'There is no mistake,' said the professor. Oscar smiled with increased deference. "'But,' he urged, "'I assure you, sir, those young men knew absolutely nothing. I was their tutor and they knew nothing at all. I taught them all their information myself.' "'In that case,'' replied the professor not pleased with oscar's tale-bearing you must have given them more than you could spare good morning before proceeding to point out that lady baltimore mr wister's next volume in point of time is in spite of all the obvious differences of subject setting and workmanship essentially the product of the same mind the same philosophy the same outlook upon life it is necessary to clear up one or two possible misunderstandings regarding certain terms used in this chapter there is for instance the statement that the virginian is mr wister's only sustained effort is one full-length novel and to offset it is the indisputable fact that lady baltimore is issued in the conventional novel form and contains upward of four hundred pages now to suggest that broad margins and large type are potent factors in lending a deceptive impression of amplitude is merely to quibble over non-essentials the difference between a short story and a novel lies deeper than a mere choice between eight and ten point type the virginian curtailed and compressed into fifty pages would still be a novel because of the serious purpose and the tremendous human truths behind it lady baltimore regardless of mathematical dimensions can never be in spirit anything more than an amplified novelette exquisite in workmanship perennially charming in its presentment of an exotic and evanescent civilization yet containing little in the way of broad generalities or of serious practical philosophy nevertheless there is the further important truth that technically lady baltimore is the most admirable artistry the most nearly flawless piece of work that mr wister has yet achieved every conservative critic must deplore the rash extravagance of a certain type of reviewer who finds in the passing novel of to-day qualities worthy of comparison with fielding and thackeray balzac and flaubert and daudet even in mr wister's case it is at least over generous to pronounce him within the limits of a single review a worthy successor both of meredith and of henry james yet this is precisely what mr edward Clark marsh a critic characterised equally by the modesty and the discernment of his judgment has done at least by implication in a review of lady baltimore a possible indebtedness to the author of the egoist we may well let pass considering how few novelists ever learn just where or how to begin or end a story it is quite natural to attribute to the few who show intelligence in this respect a conscious imitation of one of the acknowledged masters the influence of henry james is a very different matter in acknowledging his indebtedness to the author of what maisie knew in the preface already quoted mr Wister goes on to say that he once had the privilege of going over one of his own books with mr james and of having the latter point out page by page his shortcomings his lost opportunities his lack of that finished technique without which no amount of native genius can reach artistic perfection mr Wister does not state which of his volumes was thus criticised but one does not feel much diffidence in venturing the conjecture that it was the virginian, and that Lady Baltimore was Mr. Wister's prompt acknowledgement of his indebtedness, as well as a demonstration of his surprising aptness as a pupil. For this reason it is worth while to call attention to the critical acumen of Mr. Marsh's comment, anticipating as it did by five years Mr. Wister's confession. If there is a remote suggestion of Meredith in the elegant leisure of his beginning, there is a closer reference a conscious indebtedness indeed i believe to henry james in his manner the turn of his phrases and even in the framework and articulation of his story all this is perfectly true and the extraordinary thing about it is that while in everything excepting the sheer craftsmanship of writing mr Wister has followed his usual methods there is nothing in the earlier volumes to show that henry james ever before influenced him in many respects no doubt their two minds must work in much the same manner or mr Wister could never have found himself so quickly in sympathy with the veteran artist's technical methods but so far as the outsider can discover their newly revealed kinship is a matter of those more obvious questions of plot construction point of view the grouping of paragraphs or the turn of a phrase accordingly let us see first of all of what substance lady baltimore is made and secondly in what fashion and with what new manipulations mr Wister has chosen to mould that substance as all readers of the virginian are aware its author has always insisted that although its pages contain no famous characters and its date is so recent as to be practically contemporary it is nevertheless a historical novel a record of a certain phase of american history caught and preserved during the actual making In the same sense, both Philosophy for and Lady Baltimore are historical documents, representing eternal truths of human nature as reacted upon by transitory conditions. The setting of Lady Baltimore is a certain town of Kingsport, a quiet backwater in the current of southern social life, where old-time manners and customs still linger, and there is a fragrance of gentle dignity and bygone courtliness in the ordinary relations of life. Perhaps no story ever made claim to serious consideration while resting upon so fragile a foundation. Lady Baltimore is a local Southern name for a certain rare and glorious species of cake, and the cake itself could not be of more airy and delicate consistence than the story it is here called upon to sustain. Imagine a Northerner plunged by certain whims of destiny-the details are immaterial-into this tranquil eddy of an alien civilization, of whose social code he is utterly ignorant imagine him while taking luncheon in the one available cake and tea-room of the town witnessing the purchase of a lady baltimore cake by a much embarrassed young man who admits to the equally self-conscious young woman behind the counter that this cake ordered for a day near at hand is to serve at his wedding in the embarrassment of the young man the northerner scents something unusual in the way of romance and little by little he gleans the facts and pieces them together the young man it seems has committed an act which his family and friends choose to regard as suicidal he has engaged himself to a young woman of whose pedigree they know little or nothing she may be a very worthy girl but she is not one of them she does not belong to the southern aristocracy she is not a part and parcel of Kingsport. such in brief is the opening situation of lady baltimore to give an adequate idea of the way in which the unyielding indomitable force of local prejudice is brought to bear upon this young couple how gossip twists and distorts and plays havoc with the actualities of the case and how a number of destinies are forced out of their natural channels by the dead inertia of traditional social laws would mean nothing less than to rewrite lady baltimore and to spoil it in the rewriting in the virginian mr wister succeeded in giving us a thoroughly virile book without brutalizing it in lady baltimore he has achieved the harder task of producing a delightfully feminine book without stooping to effeminacy or to put it another way he has juggled dexterously with soap bubbles without breaking them in the process it remains to speak only of the technique of lady baltimore it is no new thing to find mr wister writing in the first person but it is distinctly new to find him rigidly confining himself to that narrow segment of life that passes directly within the angle of vision of his spokesman the northerner this is the henry james trick par excellence earlier novelists have sometimes done the same thing indifferently well by instinct rather than intention but mr james was the first to reduce this method to rules and the admirable consistency with which mr Wister has followed out this principle of a single viewpoint not only proves him to be an apt pupil but makes lady baltimore one of those rare achievements in american fiction a piece of technique that is almost without a flaw it is a regrettable fact that mr Wister, never a prolific author seems to be writing with never decreasing momentum it is so long since a new volume has appeared bearing his name that there is a half hearted effort to hail as a literary event the recent appearance of members of the family, in which he has gathered together the later stories of the West, which from time to time he has contributed to the magazines. In all candor, it must be admitted that the majority of them are rather lightweight. A few are frankly humorous, as for instance Happy Teeth, in which the easily aroused superstition of Indians is cleverly utilized to drive out a new post trader who has acquired monopoly through unfair means or again in the back in which a hasty although perhaps well-merited kick delivered by an army captain to one of his men becomes the subject of serious investigation and infinite red tape and is finally paid in full with accumulated interest but the stories that deserve to be remembered are Timberline and the gift-horse imagine yourself a tenderfoot unskilled in the ways of the west and without the clues that would help you to read character imagine that you have done a kindness to a man who is locally eyed askance and that he to mark his gratitude has insisted upon lending you a splendid specimen of a horse for the season it might or it might not strike you as peculiar that before giving you the horse he should inquire so particularly as to your plans and get your definite statement that you will remain throughout the summer on a certain side of a certain mountain range imagine furthermore that you suddenly change your mind and cross that range in quest of a certain legendary spring which according to indian tradition has a way of strangely appearing and disappearing you find the spring and simultaneously find an enclosure wherein there are many horses stolen horses with fresh brands not yet healed at your very feet lie a pile of branding irons and before you can collect your thoughts you are looking into the muzzle of a pistol and find yourself surrounded by a company of ominously quiet men one of whom carries a coil of hempen rope these men do not care to listen to explanations they simply cite the significant fact that you are here that the branding irons are here and that the horse you ride is a stolen one such is the awkward predicament narrated in the gift horse and there is a grim little touch at the end which completes its artistry but even stronger than this is timberline for sheer economy of means and a steady rise in dramatic force to the culminating tragedy it stands as easily the best story in the collection indeed one of the best that mr wister has ever written it is simply the account of a man little more than a boy who having been the unintentional instrument of a murder has accepted a bribe to remain silent and slowly inexorably has found himself dragged back by conscience to the scene of the crime forced under the spell of an extraordinary and awe-inspiring convulsion of nature to make confession restore the money and by his spectacular death reveal the hiding-place of the other victim at the bottom of a canyon a thousand feet below an old idea elemental in its simplicity but like many of the world's big stories owing its value to a finished workmanship an unerring instinct for telling neither too much nor too little in his earlier work as we have already seen mr wister cared little about the rules of form his strength lay in his ability to hold the attention whether he shortened up a story or unduly prolonged it in other words he told his stories in a certain form not because it was the best form but because it happened for the moment to be his form the form that came instinctively the most interesting thing about this new volume is that it shows that he is continuing to practise as he first learned to do in lady baltimore a more careful more conscious method of construction mr Wister has possessed from the first the valuable assets of sincerity force and broad popular appeal and above all he has always had something to say that was eminently worth the saying now that he has added to these qualities of finer artistry it is to be hoped that his lessened productiveness is not due to an impoverished soil but to a wise economy that deliberately lets land lie for a season fallow chapter twelve